0: This is Squawk Pod, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Finding a Cure. Moderna's big news on the race for a coronavirus vaccine. CEO Stefan Bancel on the early, but exciting human results from the biotech's phase one trial.
2: This is a very exciting data. It's still interim data, so the phase one is still ongoing. We could not be happier.
0: New Yorker writer and surgeon Dr. Atul Gawande has a regimen for social reentry, but it won't be easy.
2: The
1: challenge is that our culture is about freedom versus safety. Leave me alone or keep me safe. It's all about what other people need to do.
0: And it's another Silicon Valley story, a spurned union, a high-profile exit, and fiery tweets from the Hill. It's Monday, May 18th, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now.
3: Good Monday morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin.
0: First up on today's podcast, a glimmer of hope as the world battles the coronavirus. So far, nearly 90,000 Americans have died from COVID-19. An ongoing concern about its lasting effects on our lives has spooked investors. According to Fed Chair Jay Powell speaking on 60 Minutes, the U.S. economy may not bounce back until there is a virus vaccine available.
1: In the long run, and even in the medium run, you wouldn't want to bet against the American economy. This economy will recover. It may take a while. It may take a period of time, it could stretch through the end of next year, we really don't know. Can there be a recovery without a reasonably effective vaccine? Assuming there's not a second wave of of the coronavirus, I think you'll see the economy recover steadily through the second half of this year.
0: According to a CBS transcript, in a part of the interview that didn't air, Powell said the U.S. economy could shrink in the second quarter of 2020 by more than 20 or 30 percent. Some good news, though, on this Monday morning for the economy and for public health. Biotech Moderna revealed the first human data from a COVID-19 vaccine program, and it's good news, good enough to send stock futures soaring before the markets opened this morning. In Moderna's phase one trial of a vaccine, all patients developed antibodies to the virus. Across the study, patients who received the vaccine demonstrated a level of antibodies on par with or higher than the level of COVID antibodies in people who've recovered from the virus. So the vaccine elicits an immune response as strong as the one caused by natural infection. It's still early, but so far, the vaccine looks generally safe and well-tolerated by the human body. And even better news, Moderna plans to begin the phase three trial in July. Joe, Becky, and Andrew worked through this news moments after it broke this morning. You'll also hear CNBC's senior health and science reporter, Meg Terrell, in the conversation. Here's Becky.
3: This is the thing. That so many people have been waiting for, hearing the potential for a vaccine and seeing in this phase one study um, that it actually seems to be working uh, is amazing news. Uh, we're going to continue to watch those very closely. But joining us right now to talk more about all of this is Stefan Bensel. He is the CEO of Moderna. And Stefan, this is incredible news. Um, first of all, how many people were involved or are involved in that phase one study?
2: So good morning, Becky, and thank you for having me. Uh, the first three cohorts of healthy adults, 18 to 55 years old, were 45 subjects. Uh, recently, we decided with NIAID, the department of Dr. Tony Fauci, to add an elderly cohort, 55 to 70, additional three cohorts, and then three additional cohorts, 71 years and above. Uh, as, as Meg said, this is a very exciting data. It's still interim data, so the phase one is still ongoing. Uh, But if you think about where we sit today with the data that Meg described, we could not be happier.
3: Were there any side effects or any ill effects among any of the people who took this vaccine?
2: So the vaccine was safe and well tolerated, very typical to a vaccine. You have two types of side effects, Becky. The first one is local pain. As you can understand, when you inject a needle in somebody's arm, it never feels good, so you have pain. And then when you press on the needle, the volume of liquid basically goes and creates harm into your muscle cells. So it's a bit painful, but not worse or better than another vaccine. You have sometimes for a few people, a bit of redness around the site of injection for a day or so. Again, my immunologists tell me this is actually a good sign. That is some immune response. Uh, And then on the systemic level, you have a few subjects that have some chills at the end of the day, a couple of people, a tiny bit of fever, like when you get a flu shot, it goes away by itself, don't even need a Tylenol, just go to bed at night, and then the next day you're on your feet again. Again, immunologists will tell you this type of uh, observation are very consistent with an immune response.
3: Stefan, let, let's talk a little bit about how long ago these people were injected with the, with the doses as well, because I think there are questions about whether there are after effects uh, that come further down the line. I know people have questions about that, especially seeing some of the situations we've seen with children where it seems like they're fine. And then a few weeks later, they're getting this um, related sort of symptoms that, that, that are, are bad news from coronavirus itself. How, how long ago did these injections take place?
2: Yes, yeah, so the first subjects were injected on March 16. Uh, and if you think about the Sentinel, dose that we reported neutralizing antibodies, antibodies that can bind and neutralize the virus, they were injected basically now you know, uh, in March, mid-March. Uh, and uh, while we are monitoring of course safety very carefully, we care deeply about safety because vaccine obviously are given to healthy people. If you look at the totality of the data across the nine vaccines before the COVID that we put into the clinic, uh, some into the elderly, some in viruses like RSV, which is another respiratory virus, for which we have been in the past, you know, 40 years ago, reported some enhanced disease. Uh, we have not seen that across our platform. We have not seen that uh, as to date uh, on this vaccine. Again, we will monitor, but we don't have a reason to believe there should be enhanced disease with this technology. But again... We want to be safe and we'd, we'll, of course, monitor for patient safety.
4: So, Stefan, uh, over the years, whenever we're watching a, a, a drug progress through these clinical trials, it's always hard for, for lay people to understand the difference between phase two, phase, phase one, phase two, phase three. So, we're in phase one or phase one, phase two, and we're thinking it's just safety. All right, we're trying to measure safety and dosage and things like that but you are reporting at the same time evidence of efficacy because you're saying eight out of eight develop neutralizing antibodies. So the phase three that is, is a test for efficacy, how will that be different from what you're already seeing here? It'll be a much larger uh, study, I, I guess, and you'll be looking for basically the same thing you just told us though, right? You, you wanna see neutralizing antibodies in, uh, in all the patients that get the vaccine without side effects so is this that different than what what you're expecting to see in the phase three or will that just be a confirmation
2: so a a bit of both joe so the first thing is safety so phase one are typically in vaccine in the tens of subject it was 45 here phase two in the hundreds as we said our phase two will be 600 subjects and we look at safety and same immunogenicity in the phase three, would be thousands of subjects. You can expect many thousands. We are still discussing with the agency. Once we have finalized the protocol, we will communicate it. But we care deeply about understanding the safety of this vaccine. So that's for the size of the study. In the phase three, we will monitor neutralizing antibody, of course. But what we'll monitor is efficacy. This would be a placebo control study. Like our phase two is going to be placebo control to see people who get the vaccination versus people who get a placebo. How many people can you protect from disease to get us an efficacy rate to be able to file to regulators assuming a good outcome for an approval?
0: Stefan, it's Meg Terrell. You, you mentioned uh, in terms of the side effects that you did see fever in a few of the patients. Can
3: you tell us how many of the patients experienced fever in the study that you've observed so far? You know, I'm just getting some feedback from some, some folks who are very closely focused on this space. And they sort of seized on the idea that some people might have developed fever as a, uh, a reaction to the shot.
2: Yeah, so you saw very few cases at the second dose of the highest dose, the 250 micrograms, which we do not intend to take forward. If you recall, when we started this program very quickly, you know, 60 days from sequence of a virus to starting the phase one, we didn't have time to do enough preclinical work. We did preclinical work, obviously, but not enough. Like usually you'll take months and quarters to really understand your vaccine. And so we put a very big range 25 micrograms minimum, 100 and 250, just not to miss efficacy, because we were running against this virus and time was very precious. From what we've seen today of the neutralizing antibody at 25 and 100 micrograms to all the participants at or above uh, people that have uh, recovered from a virus, we don't need the 250 dose. And so again, that the fever was at the second dose, at the boost, at the highest dose, which again is typical when you have too much of an immune response, which now with what we know of how strong the 25 microgram is, is not surprising that 250 microgram, when you come again a second time, the immune system is kind of telling you, hey, that, that's a lot of antibodies I'm making now.
3: Stephen, Stefan, just the question that, I mean, again, this is amazing to see um, the efficacy that is taking place in this. And I think that's why you're now looking at the Dow up by more than 420 points. Uh, but just the idea that you need two doses, There are more than 320 million people in America. How how quickly can you start knocking out doses? What what does your timeline look like? And has it changed at all from when we talked to you a few weeks ago when you were getting that phase two approvals um, from the FDA?
2: So we were already, as you know, working on process scale up. And with our Lonza partnership, we've said we could go up to a billion uh, dose per year. What is clear is with this new data, which we just got at the end of last week we're going to increase our investment in capital equipment in raw materials so that we can make as many doses as we can we know uh, every dose is going to matter uh, there's a very nice study and work that the cdc has done preparing for a pandemic flu a few years ago that is available online and they describe there the priority that people will get the vaccine you know healthy young adults are not first in line healthcare workers are elderly with comorbidities are so uh, we're going to go basically by waves of people for vaccination, and as I said before on your show, I do expect that over vaccine make it too, because no manufacturers can make enough doses for the entire planet, but if several vaccines have a chance to get to approval, we have a chance to uh, significantly impact the reduction of infection and in disease and go back to a normal life.
3: Your stock is up 30% um, on this news this morning. Year-to-date, it's up 341%. Where, where are you getting the money to make these additional investments?
2: So, as you know, uh, Becky, we have a strong balance sheet, uh, $1.7 billion, uh, reported at the Q1 earnings call, uh, a grant from Bada, $500 million, uh, plus grant from the Gates Foundation and others. So the company is well capitalized. We have also partners. So uh, the company is in a great place to invest aggressively.
5: Just, just, just to that point, though, given where the stock is, you think about uh, making a billion of these things, uh, a billion of these doses. What do you ultimately think the price even the price could even be,
2: and what the profit margin should or shouldn't be, given these issues? Yes. Yeah, so uh, we have not spent too much time working on price yet. We need to get to it now, as you can appreciate, going from sequence to phase two in four months, and six months to a phase three. We had no time to do anything but that. And the team has been working literally seven days a week. And so we need to start thinking about pricing. As you can appreciate, we're going to be very thoughtful. We know it's a pandemic. Uh, We know people are waiting for the product. And so we just have to figure out uh, what's uh, the right price for this product.
3: And again, incredible news. Thank you very much for joining us today to talk about it. We hope to have you back again soon as you get more updates and, and more that we can learn. It's uh, your stock up by more than 26% this morning, but as we're watching the Dow, which was up by 270 points at 6 a.m. when we started the show, right now the Dow is up by about 470 points the last I looked because so many people are waiting On the idea of of a vaccine a vaccine that works and that kind of being the key we even heard from jay powell last night on 60 minutes where he said look the economy might not get back to full speed until we get a vaccine but promising news like this is a lot for us to hang our hat on Um, stefan thank you very much for being with us today and good luck with everything you're working on meg terrell want to thank you too for for being here as part of this and stefan we'll see you soon thank you
2: very
4: much so the Think about it. Mo- Moderna market cap was $25 billion at the Friday's close, 30%. And that is that is a real company now. I mean, in terms of biotech, I'm $32, billion, 30, 32 right $33 yeah. billion dollar company. So there's yeah. a lot riding on. Uh, so I don't know what the margins but would be So I big
5: expectation bit. that they're going to make a profit off this
4: thing.
5: But it's
3: even more if you yeah. look at – even more important is what you see in the Dow, like the overall right. idea – that as we make progress on this, I mean, forget about the market cap that it just added to Moderna. Look at the market cap that was added on the Dow. If you're just looking at, at, at companies that are saying, OK, when can we get back to work? How do we make people feel safe? How do we make people willing to start flying on airplanes again, right. going back to hotels, wow. even getting on cruises? Think right. of the, this is the, key the for something seat. like that.
4: Think of the naysayers yeah. with the 18 months or never getting back to normal. When you knew that Moderna had eight candidates or nine candidates that they had already, the the proof of of efficacy and and the way that they developed the mRNA uh, uh, vaccines, they had done it with some of the other uh, diseases where it probably wasn't that much of a leap in faith to believe that science, with where we are right now, was going to have some success in doing this. So, you know, the idea that we're never going to, Get back to normal. I mean, that, let's you know, I, I, there's there's happy talk, but there's also realistic talk about where we are in, in terms I, of science. So Andrew, you don't need to. Could be, be fabulous. You don't need to. You don't it, it just no, no. be happy today. You don't. I mean, I know it might what my. What I was work. saying was, it's could, not no, no, done. no. What I was saying was, could be done.
5: fabulous for the economy. Could be fabulous for the economy, which I hope could be fabulous for our health, which is paramount. The question I was just raising is. And especially because we've had, you know, the CEO of J&J and others come on right. is when it comes to how profitable it's going to be for any of these companies, given that you have some companies like J&J, that if, they, if their vaccine works, they say they're they're going to do it effectively as a not for profit right. operation. A lot so, of them. By the way, I would pay a fortune for this vaccine, as I know so many others would. I just think it's going to become a, uh, a a hot potato politically, not just in the United States, but across the globe. You know,
3: I, I, I hope we have those problems. I hope those are troubles that we have to kind of work our way through. It beats what we're dealing with right now. And I, I, I have to say, remember, Stefan Benzel, talk to us in Davos. I, I ran into him at a breakfast I was at in Davos and he told me that day in early, in, in I guess mid-January, mid to late, mid to the third week of January, that they were already working on this at that point. We reported on some of that at Davos. So the, This was so long that he's been kind of working on this and keying on this and you watch it year to date that stuck up 326%. And it's were, just amazing to see what happens.
4: There were other respiratory viruses that were RNA viruses, mRNA viruses where they yeah. the proof of this that uh, uh, technology seemed to be there so it is great and it's not done and it, you know meg pointed out some things and it's only phase one phase two and you got to make a lot of and all these things but yeah the state of what we know now about all this stuff compared to 10 20 30 100 years ago is we're, we're just head and <laughs> shoulders above and i feel know. better than i did 20 minutes ago
0: Next on Squawk Pod, New Yorker writer and surgeon, Dr. Atul Gawande discusses a combination therapy for fighting coronavirus.
1: The four elements for us are hand hygiene, um, screening people for symptoms, masks, and social distancing at work. Each of them are imperfect, but you put them together, you're able to shut down the virus.
0: We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? This is Squawk Pod. Here's Becky Quick.
3: As 45 states have begun reopening, questions remain about how to do so safely. Dr. Atul Gawande is uh, writing in The New Yorker, where he states that governments can learn from hospitals like his, where healthcare workers have been reporting for business since the beginning of this crisis. Dr. Atul Gawande joins us right now. He is the staff writer for The New Yorker, also a surgeon at Brigham and Women's Hospital and the chairman of Haven. And Dr. Gawande, thanks for being with us.
1: Delighted to be here.
3: So what advice would you give to businesses as they start to try and get back to some sort of uh, normal operations?
1: Well, I think the key thing, my hospital system has 75,000 workers, for example. We have kept them, 50,000 of us have turned up for work in the last month, and we have prevented the hospital from being a site of transmission. There's a basic approach we've taken that's turned out to be a kind of combination therapy, like a drug cocktail. The four elements for us are hand hygiene, um, screening people for symptoms, masks, and social distancing at work. Each of them are imperfect, but you put them together and you get a, uh, and you get a, you're able to shut down the virus. The critical part of it is adding to a culture. And culture means being committed to the idea that we're all doing our part to avoid infecting one another.
3: That may be the biggest question a lot of, a lot of people have, because I, I think a lot of people feel that you're only as strong as the weakest link. And if you see people who aren't washing their hands, if you see people who aren't wearing their masks, that's got to make uh, people pretty nervous. How do you make sure that everyone complies?
1: It's a it's it's a challenge, right? So the challenge is that our culture, our discussion in American uh, life right now is about freedom versus safety leave me alone or keep me safe. It's all about what other people need to do. We overcame this in the healthcare sector by saying, I wanna come to work every day, never wanting to infect anybody else. I never want to cause someone else to be in the morgue. In order to build that culture, you partly have to make clear that you are the risk. We have hundreds of thousands of people who have infection. They don't know it. We spread it. The, the dynamics of this virus is we spread it without knowing it. And that critical capability means that we have to be able to talk to one another, say, hey, dude, your mask isn't up. And then be, say, be able to say, thank you. This isn't about you protecting you. This is about you protecting me and I will protect you.
5: Doctor, it's uh, Andrew Sorkin. We were talking about this issue earlier in the last hour because we were talking about masks. And I know you are a major proponent of of masks and N95 masks, if possible. We were talking about the valve and how uh, if your mask is protecting me and my mask is supposed to protect you, that actually having a valve on it undoes that that protection and and makes it almost worthless. Um, How do you change the psychology? I know you're talking about the psychology issue, but there are so many people you walk into a store even and there have been. Uh, reports even over the weekend of, of almost battles that seem to be taking place inside these stores because you have customers that are wearing masks, you have customers that aren't wearing masks, you have customers not wearing masks asking other customers to take their masks off, and people who are wearing the masks telling the other people that they have to put their masks on and, and I think that's a this is going to be a, a, a big issue, not and it, it can be done maybe in a workforce in a, in a closed setting, but in this larger
1: setting, it becomes even more complicated yeah two things to understand. First of all, the numbers seem to indicate that you don't have to be perfect. If we can get over 60% of us wearing masks that are 60% effective, and if you have a double-layer cotton mask that's well-fitting, that's at least 60% effective. If we do that, we can shut down the virus. It's all about most, you know, the vast majority of us constantly getting better at putting these pieces together. Yes, there are going to be people who, you know, don't want to wear their masks just like they don't necessarily want to get their vaccinations, but above a certain level and it doesn't have to be perfect, we can create the change. That is about a culture that um, that we can all say to each other, "Hey man, can you protect me?" And then, you know, if someone wants to be confrontational about it, you back off, but we are all learning. And you know, I'm impressed walking around on the streets People are wearing masks, it's different from community to community. The ones that are going to see the burst of infections, guess what? They're going to change. So this is about us learning, not, not about going, becoming vigilantes with each other, but about building a way that we are actively interested in preventing, infecting one another, infecting our parents, infecting um, uh, anybody who could, who could really die from this.
3: Doctor, how long do you think before we'll understand if um, things are going to be okay as we come out of it? Do we need to look two to three weeks to see as people start to open up and businesses uh, start to come back? Do you need to look four or five, six weeks down the road? When will we know if, okay, it looks like things are really okay at this point and it's safe to come back out?
1: we don't have a great leading indicator, right? The the frustration about the coronavirus is that as we open up, it's gonna be two weeks until we see the cases emerge, the spike in the tests, and then another two weeks till you see the hospitalizations turn out. However, um, the the best signs, one of the critical components of this is um, looking for whether people have symptoms. And it's really important that we all understand you could have what seems like a cold, it could be sniffles, and you gotta stay home. Um, I've been totally fascinated by the internet thermometers. There's a one company called Kinza, and if you go to their website, you can track where fevers are emerging, and that's a very early indicator, you know, where people are starting to have symptoms. We need to, in our workplaces and also when you go out in the public, be checking with each other and take seriously, you know, have you had a fever today? Have you had a sore throat? Have you even had a new runny nose? Those are turning out to be indicators that two, three, four days later you get worse and you have the, uh, and you have the disease. So you want to stay home and those are early indicators for a business as well. Do you you got to ask people every day. And if you start seeing that the number of people who are creeping up with having the symptoms. If those are climbing, that's an indicator that you may well have a problem.
4: So, Doctor, just in, in some of the notes and in, in, uh, in anticipation of you coming on, I was surprised that one of them says uh, that person-to-person with droplets is probably the the, the way it, it usually happens and that environmental transfer is only, only 6%. And I'm wondering where, when did that become the, the thinking. And it, it, let's say someone that has it sneezes in the, in the grocery store. So those droplets that could be all over the place, th- those aren't likely to result in a spread to, to, to someone that picks something up?
1: That's right. In the last three weeks or so, the measures of what environmental transmission can be from surfaces and things like that seems to be low, as low as 6%. You know, it's, it's not a, a precise number, but it's clear. The majority is airborne. Um, social distancing is important. Most of it is present, prevented by staying six feet away from one another. When you sneeze, cough, talk, breathe, you are putting out respiratory droplets. Six feet isn't like a viral law. There isn't a stop sign that viruses can't go beyond that. Okay. Um, sneezing is the worst. It can uh, um, spread well past six feet to 10 feet, 15 feet. If you're at the peak moment of infectivity, we all heard about the choir case in uh, Skagit Valley uh, Corral in Washington state, where one person who was infected ended up infecting an entire corral. Uh, more than 45 out of 60 people um, uh, got infected in an hour long practice. Right. Yeah. Uh, an hour long practice. Uh, a little over an hour of practice. Um, so the core of it is yeah. that we know that um, the droplets tend to stop uh, within, uh, within that six feet, but you wanna wear the mask because okay. that helps stop your droplets from spreading.
4: I hope we can uh, extend the interview a little, doctor. I had one other question and that is, let's say someone uh, gets uh, antibody testing and, and they have what a fairly faint line but shows that they were definitely exposed. Was there a time in there when they had been exposed when they were absolutely contagious? If they were completely asymptomatic and now have antibodies, was there a time when they could have passed on, or is it possible that they were, they were not only asymptomatic but didn't have enough viral load to ever be contagious? Do, you, do we know?
1: Yeah, so um, very likely the people who, have, who are testing positive for antibodies had active disease. Um, we know that uh, there are some people who never became symptomatic and we're still trying to understand how many of those people there are and whether they were passing infection while they had never developed any symptoms. However, at at present, we do know know before you develop your symptoms, before you develop cough and all those things, at least two days before, you are at the peak of infection and ability, infectivity and ability to spread. Yeah, but it's important that we recognize. But but if if um, you
4: didn't get, but if you didn't go from the pre to where you you exhibit symptoms, does that mean that you were contagious then? uh, At present, we don't know. So two examples, most kids who get
1: infected uh, have the same viral load, it looks like as adults, but never, um, never develop symptoms. That's most kids. We don't know how much they are, how significant they are as silent carriers who can infect others. Um, that is still to be understood.
3: Dr. Gwanda, you recently took the role of chairman at Haven uh, uh, rather than the CEO role. Of course, Haven, for those who don't know, is the uh, the operation between uh, Berkshire Hathaway, J.P. Morgan and Amazon to try and tackle what's happening in the health care system. Why did you take that chairman role and how are things going at, at Haven right now?
1: Well, I'm delighted to be able to uh, take this role, which allows me to focus on strategy, also be externally active, including on on COVID-19. And we're focused on our million, uh, more than a million workers and their families for better costs, better outcomes, um, and uh, better experience of care. We have a number of tests and uh, strategies underway. We're evaluating them now. Uh, it's turning. It's it's the effort to turn a Titanic of, of a healthcare system, and we're making good progress. And uh, we'll be reporting out on what we learn as we go along.
3: Dr. Jigwande, thank you for your time today. It's good to see you, and we hope to have you back soon.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Next on SquawkPod, sagas from Silicon Valley, from SoftBank's executive departures to potential tech consolidation.
5: It's a hard one. Competition's important. We want lots of competition. I think what you want in this case is probably two or three really strong players who can actually compete against each other.
0: We'll be right back.
6: This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you.
0: Welcome back to Squawk Pod with Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Here's Andrew.
5: You know, we've been talking about SoftBank for so long. Uh, this is a, a moment that's going to be written down, I imagine, in the history of SoftBank. Alibaba's founder, Jack Ma, stepping down from SoftBank's board of directors after 13 years. This is the latest in a string of high-profile departures from the Japanese investment giant. Ma had been an ally of CEO Masayoshi. overnight, and this is what's coinciding with it and why This might be the history-making part even more so. SoftBank reported a record $13 billion loss for its most recent quarter, mostly tied to its investment in WeWork, uh, one of the topics that we seem to talk about uh, almost daily. Meantime, The Wall Street Journal reporting that SoftBank is in talks to sell a significant portion of its T-Mobile stake to controlling shareholder Deutsche Telekom. That would boost Deutsche Telekom's stake from around 44% to about 50%. SoftBank has been under a lot of pressure from activist Elliott, uh, act, activist investor Elliott Management to boost its liquidity and fund a large stock buyback program. So a lot of things happening there. And then uh, one more story in the deal world. The Wall Street Journal reporting that Grubhub has rebuffed Uber's latest offer. We've uh, talked about uh, the back and forth that's been going on and the difference over price. The report says the CEO's held talks over the weekend and Grubhub deemed the latest offer of 1.9 Uber shares for each Grubhub share as being too low. Yesterday, Senator Amy Klobuchar blasted the merger talks, calling any deal. She says bad for competition and for consumers. She tweeted, if Uber takes over Grubhub, it isn't good for competition and it isn't good for you. When big companies corner the market, it usually means more for them and less for you, especially in a pandemic. That's why I'm challenging the Trump uh, administration, the antitrust enforcers, to do something about it. Having said that, I would say to Amy Klobuchar that... uh, Silicon Valley investors and, well, investors writ large have effectively been subsidizing uh, all of this for all of us for quite some time. And the consolidation probably has to come to this uh, market at some point. Otherwise, the economics of it don't even work to begin with. Good for you. um, Good for you. A little bit bit difficult. It's it's a hard one. It's a hard one. Competition is important. We want lots of competition. I think what you want in this case is probably two or three really strong players who can actually compete against each other instead of four or five really weak players that are all falling over each other and will ultimately uh, fall down if something
4: doesn't happen. It's all about each specific instance. I guess I'm looking back at some of the lunacy or or banality of the AOC proposal. with Who was that with... uh, Elizabeth Warren or whatever that we Elizabeth talked Warren, about yeah. last week just where all of them can't do any of them it just it, you need to do it individually there are times where either you're going to be left with zero companies because it's just not viable or you're gonna be left with the and, yeah. and sometimes it the operations are rationalized sometimes not everyone from both companies gets to stay but I mean, it's just the way things you, know. you, you can go back and look at, at history and see that these are there are times where you need to do it. Maybe some that don't work, some that do. But a blanket statement that you're just going to not allow any of them to happen. But I think she's wrong. It's I, I do. And I think she but, wants she probably wants to be vice president and, and, you know, likes to get out there. And uh, I, th- I think it's wrong. And I think you're very gentle. You said, what, how did you, you, you use one of those phrases about how you said it and then you were going to disagree with it? you said uh i right you, you just you, you read what she said and then you go i would just add that blah, and then, and then you sort of push back on the other side in a very gentle way uh because she's I'm 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 a, I'm Bet, a, I'm a gentle guy. Hey, Joe. Yeah, you are gentle. Yes, back.
3: Joe, can I can I just say I agree with you wholeheartedly on on going against what AOC and yep. Elizabeth Warren were saying about how there's no need for any mergers. In right. this case, I, I do have a few questions simply because. I think the risk is the restaurants on the other side are the ones who very much get squeezed by this, too. If you talk to any restaurant that uses these companies, right. they their don't sales need to be on those things tend either. not to be profitable. And, and and they're just not in a position to be able to have a lot of wiggle room either. It was right. interesting when we had Dara, Kastra, Dara Kastrashahi on uh, just in the last week or two. He talked about Uber Eats and said that right now they're still not profitable. Um, things are looking better people are using the service much more frequently but Uber Eats itself is, is not profitable and I think that speaks to some of the but troubles in the industry. that's the in problem, none of these You're businesses... You're definitely going to have to have consumers paying more. Yeah, I know but the, the, the answer is going to be they're going to need more money from consumers and more money from restaurants and that's a tricky proposition
5: right, right now. 100%. Charge a real price. 100%. 100%. 100%. All right.
0: That's the show for today. Thanks for listening as we kick off another week, week 10, actually, of our podcasting from home. On our rundown tomorrow, basketball legend Magic Johnson and his latest assist, supporting small businesses affected by the COVID crisis. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. And to get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. We're on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Wherever you listen, we'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is
6: supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you, like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you.